And please open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you stand, I'll be reading verses 15, uh, 14 through 22. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 14 through 22 as we really reach the culmination of Paul's argument to flee idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Please be seated. Now recently, uh, megachurch pastor Andy Stanley held a conference at his church in which he invited two men in a homosexual relationship to present their ministry of helping pastors and, fa- and family members find reconciliation with their LGBTQ family members. Now, I actually hesitate a bit to even mention Andy Stanley as I do not desire to give him more press as some kind of evangelical on the edge. I would hold that his ministry has not been truly biblical for many years. However, his influence is felt in many places in evangelicalism, and it seems good to discuss this issue briefly because it applies directly to our text, the things that we have been studying. You see, what Stanley has argued is not that he is saying that the Bible teaches that homosexuality and transgenderism are right. He's simply saying that it is necessary for the church to reach out to and accept those in its midst who have decided that they cannot live a fulfilled life without giving in to their LGBTQ desires. In doing so, Stanley has committed the grave error of disassociating biblical truth from holy behavior in the life of the church. His advocation of embracing LGBTQ lifestyles within the church puts him squarely in the error of the Corinthians, who boasted in their great knowledge and maturity in the allowance of an incestuous relationship in the church, something which the Apostle Paul condemned in the strongest terms. Additionally, to accommodate the sexual practices of our world and allow them into the church, even while condemning the fact that they are condemned in Scripture, is to commit the error of thinking that we can worship God and worship the gods of this world at the same time. In our passage this morning, Paul reveals that to attempt this kind of accommodation of false worship is to attempt to partake of the worship of God and the worship of demons at the same time, something that he declares to be an abomination, a provoking of the Lord to jealousy, and an invitation to our own destruction. He does this by contrasting the worship of God through the Lord's Supper and the worship of demons that takes place in pagan worship. So this morning, we will see that true believers delight in the worship of God as exemplified in the Lord's Supper and must never adulterate this worship by participating in any kind of pagan worship service and thus mixing the worship of God and the worship of demons. True believers delight in the worship of God exemplified in the Lord's Supper and must never adulterate this worship by participating in any kind of pagan worship service and thus mixing the worship of God and the worship of demons. Pagan idolatry is, in fact, the worship of demonic forces. Now, in chapter 10, Paul is reaching the culmination of his argument. He has already given us the example of Old Testament Israel, and it has been a stern example. 
The fact that they, as God's chosen people, thinking that somehow they're being chosen of him, they're God's ethnic chosen people, that somehow that would protect them from God's disciplining hand of judgment upon their sin was a grave error on their part. Paul points this out. And very similarly, the Corinthians seemed to have believed that the fact that they were in Christ, the fact that they were spiritually gifted, had the knowledge of Christ, that that enabled them to indulge in or to be part of sinful practices, and that somehow the, the disciplining hand of God would not come upon them. And Paul, at the end of laying out four sins of Israel, which seem to have also been exemplified in the Corinthian church, says in verse 12, we discussed this last week, evaluate, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Corinthians, Paul says, as I've just given you these examples of what went on in Israel, do not think that somehow you will stand if you pursue that kind of sin. You will fall. And of course, there's a direct application to us today. We must evaluate. We must not think we stand lest we fall. We must not think that somehow we as believers can engage in the practices of the world, really pursuing the things the world pursues and loves, and somehow combine that with a worship of and a pursuit of God. To do so is an abomination. To do so is to essentially worship at the feet of the gods of this world, the demons of this world, as well as to try to worship God himself. And God will not have it in his chosen people. So we've been discussing the danger of that, but also the, in verse 13 where Paul says, look, you don't have to pursue idols. Because it seems that the Corinthians and maybe we in our day and age are saying, look, this is too much for us. We, we can't handle this pressure. We, we, we have to give in. So we, if we worship idols, it's okay because the pressure was so great. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 or 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. You don't have to give in to that temptation. Even something like a family member who might walk away into transgenderism or into homosexuality, even that kind of pressure does not force you to sin. And the pressure is intense. It would be very, very difficult as a father or mother or in a family like that to not want to capitulate and say, well, I'm just going to say that's okay because I can't, I can't handle the pressure. No, Paul says you can handle those temptations. You don't have to flee to idolatry. The church does not have to capitulate to the world. We have the power to overcome idolatry. No temptation has overtaken us, but such as is common to man, Paul says. God is faithful he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. The world is not too great. Nothing ever in the world will come upon us that is too great for us to handle because we have the power of God and the spirit of God. We have the word of God and the church of God and we can endure through the trial. There is a way of escape and the way of escape is faithful obedience day in and day out, pursuing what God has for us. Therefore, he says in verse 14, flee from idolatry. That serves as a hinge. It's looking backwards because of the fall of Israel and the danger that there is if you get involved in sin as a believer, because you have been given the strength to escape, you need to escape. You need to flee. But it also points us ahead. This verse 14 is a hinge. So the therefore now points us ahead to you had best flee immorality because to pursue idolatry is also to pursue the worship of demons. You must flee idolatry. So it begins, we begin with that this morning. Paul will now work his way towards his final argument, really laying to rest two of the Corinthians' main contentions. The first one seems to be that uh, since idols aren't real, as we saw in verse chapter 8, since idols aren't real, there's no real gods, 
then it is not only of little consequence what we eat, meat sacrificed to idols, but where we eat is of no concern as well because there aren't real gods. So if I go to a place where other gods are being worshipped, I'm not really worshipping those other gods, and I'm fine. That seemed to be their first contention. The second contention was, well, as long as we are Christians, as long as we participate in communion and are part of the church of God, then we won't fall under God's discipline again. We're His chosen people. Seems to be their second contention. Things will be fine for us because we are chosen of God. Paul is laying both of those contentions to rest. He's saying neither of those are true. It doesn't matter where you eat, and you may not partake of the Lord's Supper and say, well, that's going to make me fine. God won't bring his disciplining hand upon me. In fact, the very partaking of the Lord's Supper in a wrong manner was a primary thing that was bringing them under God's disciplining hand. So as he makes this transition, we'll see this really in three, under three headings. Wise men flee idolatry. Idolatry provokes Christ to jealousy. And provoking Christ to jealousy is insane. Right? Is insane. First, wise men flee idolatry. Well, this is the command he gives. So Paul's command, verse 14. <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Because of the examples you have, because of the greatness of Christ, because it is it is adulterating the worship of God to pursue idolatry and try to pursue the worship of him as well, you must flee from this. You must put it as far away from you as possible. The way of escape from idolatry you must take. But notice what he says. My beloved. That is really important. This is a difficult church, right? The Corinthian church, right? It's difficult. And Paul says, look, I am saying this because I love you. You are my beloved people. The fact that they were difficult, the fact that they were, so many of them seem to be engaged in sinful practices or at least explaining away the sinful practices of those in the church, being, saying that's fine, it's okay if they do those things, and, and coming against Paul in a variety of ways, challenging his authority, challenging his, his being a true apostle. Paul's saying, look, I love you. And the commands that I'm giving you flow out of that love. Why wouldn't I command you to flee from idolatry because of the devastation that it will bring and because of the greatness of the God that you long to serve? You're Christians. So I echo this truth, my beloved. How could I tell you anything differently? How could I hold back from you this important challenge to flee idolatry? If I loved you, I would tell you, is what Paul is saying, and that's what I'm saying this morning. If I love you, I will preach this well to you, and I will not hold back the strength of the text or the challenge that it brings, but I will also not hold back my love. This is given because I long, because the elders long, because the leaders of the church long to see you conform to the image of Christ, which is your best hope at any time. It is the very reason for which you were created. We long to see this church reflecting properly the glory of the greatness of our God, because Christians are only truly happy when they're looking like Jesus. You want to be happy? Pursue looking like Jesus. You will be happy. I long for this for you, and that you will not be afraid of the things around you. So Paul's command and Paul's challenge. He says, Verse 15, <clears throat> I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Now, this is fascinating because Paul has used this term already, but he's used it sarcastically. In 1 Corinthians 4.10, he said, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent. There's the word. I mean, you know everything, right? You are prudent in Christ. We're weak. You're strong. You're distinguished. We are without honor. It was tongue in cheek. You think you're so mature. You think you're so strong. You think that you are actually wiser than the apostle who is writing to you. But here, I don't think he's using it in the same kind of biting context because he's just said, look, you're, you're my beloved. 
And now I think what he's, he's, bring, he's highlighting is you do actually have the wisdom necessary to do what I say, to properly judge the reality of what is being said, as we will see, that, that Scripture is true. It says, look, you're sensible people. Alistair Begg uses this all the time for his congregation. You'll hear him preaching. He goes, you're sensible people. And what he means is, you're not just, you know, you're, you kind of have good common sense. He's saying, you're, you're well taught. When I say well taught, I'll use that from the pulpit a lot. You're well taught. So well, that's what this means. You have the right information. You have the spirit of God. You have the word of God. You have good examples around you. You could put this into practice. You can be prudent, which is to take the proper truth about God and apply it rightly in your own lives so that you reflect the character of Christ. That's prudence. And I would say this to you. It's the same. If you're a Christian here this morning, you're a sensible person. That is, you can think with the mind of Christ. You could. You might not be. Paul says, look, you are, I speak as to wise men. You think you're wise, but actually, if you would take hold of the wisdom, truly understanding what God has for you, you could and will properly discern the right way to act. This is what we need to do. Every time we hear the truths of Scripture, we need to be sensible people. He says then, you are, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Now, this is fascinating. He's not saying, look, I'm going to open this up, and you decide whether this is right or wrong. No, no, no. He's using the word judge here as you determine that this is right. You need to make a judgment. This is so important. You may not sit Sunday after Sunday after Sunday just letting information flood into your mind and maybe liking the preaching or liking the community or wanting your family here. You have to make a judgment. You need to make a discerning judgment Every time you hear the truth of the scripture, I will believe that and put it into practice. This is what parents do with their kids. They don't say, you know, I've got, a, I've got something I'm going to tell you. You judge if I'm right. Like, no, no. You judge what I say. I'm right. You're wrong. You need to do this. Well, Paul's an apostle. Parents often are wrong. Paul is never wrong when he's speaking as an apostle, when it's written down in scripture. So when we judge what scripture says, we're not bringing our own judgment upon it. We are determining to believe what is true. But you have to discern that. That doesn't happen by accident. Some of you sit week after week and you refuse to make proper judgments about what you ought to do, that you're going to believe that and you're going to put it into practice and your life doesn't change. You may not sit passively under the word. You have to make judgments and you have the spiritual power and ability to do so. You're wise people. You're sensible people. Judge that this is true and make the proper changes in your life. The Corinthians, in their arrogance, were refusing to make proper judgments. They were not changing. They were challenging what Paul was saying. We don't challenge Scripture. We judge it to be true, and we come underneath it. Because you judge what I say. Judge that what I'm saying is right. So, we have the first thought here is that wise men flee idolatry. Well, why? Because B, idolatry provokes Christ to jealousy. So you had best run far from it. Anything that would provoke the God of the universe to jealousy is something that you ought to avoid, right? That's his argument. Now, he's going to move through a complex argument. It's actually, it, it's not, it's, the flow of it is not so complex. It, it's, it's a relatively linear move from if you worship God and have communion with him, you can't worship demons and have communion with them. It's pretty simple. But he immediately dives into this argument about the Lord's Supper, so it seems a little difficult. So we're just going to trace what he says. He's just going to link all these arguments together to get from point A, you are worshipers of God, to point B, you can't also worship demons. He starts then with a, with a practical example. So he says in verse 16, 
he immediately launches into, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? You're like, what? Right from flee idolatry, your wise people, judge what I say. Hey, how about communion? How about the Lord's Supper? Why are we talking about this? Because the Lord's Supper is one of the primary visible ways in which we as the gathered church commune with, have fellowship with Christ. It's, you can touch it and feel it and see it. You take of the cup and you take of the bread. So he uses this as an example. He could have just, in one sense, used just coming together as a body of Christ. But since he's talking about pagan meals, the thing that corresponds to a meal in the church is what? The Lord's Supper. It's a a fellowship meal in that sense. So we come together partaking of having a meal to celebrate our communion with God through Christ. We partake of the cup and of the bread. And that's what he says. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. This idea of sharing is the key to the entire passage. The ESV translates it participation, but the New King James, I think, actually translates it best. It's it's the word koinonia, fellowship, but it's not like fist bump, hey, you know, we're all Vols fans, or it's not like that kind of fellowship. It's fellowship that's deep communion. It's an, an intense participation together in something, a sharing together. So it's a powerful word, koinonia. And so, so I think the best way to translate this is communion. The idea of having communion with. Because I think that word for Christians carries a lot of weight. Sharing is kind of a, like sharing in. What are we talking about there? Well, we're talking about, again, a deep participation together with. An interaction with that indicates a unity. That's the idea of this sharing. And he begins with the cup. It's interesting, he kind of reverses the order that that he's going to give for communion in verse 11. We usually do bread and then cup. I think his mind immediately jumps to the blood of Christ. And so he presents that first. I don't think there's any structural purpose here except to begin with this cup of blessing which we bless. And what a sweet way to think of the juice that we drink. I'm just taking a little cup of juice. And in that sense, it's a cup of blessing. One, will we receive, in that sense, it's a picture of all the blessing that we receive through the atoning death of Christ. That's what the sharing in the blood of Christ means. That is, the blood of Christ is the, is the representation of his atoning death on our behalf. All of the benefits. You're not actually drinking Christ's blood. You're partaking symbolically of the benefits of his death, his shedding, his blood on your behalf. But it's a cup of blessing. Where not only do we receive the blessing, but probably more in view is that we bless God. We thank God for what he has done for us as we partake of that cup. We rejoice in the blessings of Christ on our behalf. And it's, it's probably linked to the Passover background of the Lord's Supper. And that's what was going on in the uh, upper room on that night. They were taking the Passover, but then it gets switched, right? It gets turned into something else. And either the third or the fourth cup of the Passover meal, usually the third was called the cup of blessing, where they would bless God for his deliverance. Well, now in Christ, this blessing is an eternal and completed one. The blessings that we receive, the cup of blessing which we bless. So he's most likely tying it directly there. And that then brings those blessings, what? The blessings of the new covenant that God has given to us. That we as a church are the first fruits of the partakers of. Yes, Israel will partake in the new covenant by the Lord's grace as he brings them back to himself at the end of time. But the church now participating in those blessings ahead of Israel, even to make them jealous. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, this cup, and we'll discuss this more in detail. This morning is not the time to dig deeply into the Lord's Supper. That's coming in 1 Corinthians 11. But this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
do this in remembrance of me. And not every elder of the church believes the same way about the nature of communion and the new covenant, but it is a strongly robust position, and it's even a dispensational position that we would hold that we as the church are partakers of the new covenant, and that this, the Lord's Supper, is a picture of the blessings we've received now that we are in Christ. What a blessing. It's a cup of blessing, but it's also a cup of sharing. It says the cup of blessing which we bless is a sharing and a participation, a communion in or with Christ as a result of his person and work, of what he has done on our behalf. Thankfulness for his sacrifice, worship of him as Savior and Lord, identification with him as the object of our supreme love and joy, recognition of and delight in his presence with us, appreciation of and participation in our union with him and our true fellowship with other believers. This is a tangible experience in that sense. We partake of the elements to remind us there was a real sacrifice made. Not that the elements are Christ's body and blood or are Christ, but that physical, tangible partaking reminds us of and really, really causes us to think about the nature of the Christ who is actually present with us. He is here, and we need to remember that. Now, there's unique unity and communion found with believers in communion with Christ because we are uniquely indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But that is not entirely Paul's point here because he's going to use the same word communion for our sharing with Christ in the Lord's Supper, for Israel sharing with God through the sacrifices, and for the Gentiles sharing with demons in theirs. So the idea is not the depth of our relationship with God through Christ and the Spirit of God. That's true. Right? And that's alluded to here in the Lord's Supper. But really what he's saying is just reminding them there's a real sharing, a real communion. When you go to worship, there's a real deity there. And with us as believers, he is really here participating with us, as it were, and we are honoring him, and we need to remember that. That's why we're here. So this koinonia, this communion, doesn't bring us into some kind of mystic relationship. I mean, as believers, we're brought into a real spiritual relationship by the Spirit of God. There's nothing unique and mystic that happens during our partaking, but by faith, we are worshiping, honoring, and praising the very God whose presence we are in. And that is a sacred opportunity. A real God with real people, really in communion with him as we worship. Now, he's going to bring the, the next aspect. So he says, first, the sharing in the cup of blessing we share in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Both elements right, are a picture of our communion with Christ in his death, burial, and even in his resurrection. His blood being shed and his body going to the grave. And when it says a sharing in the body of Christ, right, or the, the bread which we break, I think the idea here is, I mean, it could be he's just speaking of the fact that Christ sacrificed his body. I mean, his body in that sense wasn't broken. No, none of his bones were broken. So it's not the idea of Christ's body was broken apart for us. But I do think the idea of the broken bread is what? That the one body is then distributed, it's broken up and distributed to each individual so they're partakers of the one bread. In fact, he says that in the next verse. So the breaking is not, as it were, Christ's body being broken. It is his death for us in which we each can individually participate. The picture of the bread being taken and given. Now, see, we don't, in, in our communion, you get the pieces already. We don't come up and then break the pieces out for you. In the first communion service, what did Jesus do? He took one loaf, took pieces of it, and gave it. Again, there's just too many, too many people to do that. That's why we don't do it that way. But you need to remember 
That when you partake of the individual pieces, that's all of one bread, as it were. That's to be the idea. Because we as individuals are all, partaker, are all partakers of one body, of Christ's body. Right? So we have this, so A here, or, your, or number one, is this idea that we as Christians have communion with Christ in the Lord's Supper. But also, number two, as he moves out of this thought of the sharing in the body of Christ through the broken bread, says Christ, or Christians have communion with one another in the Lord's Supper. Back in your text, look at verse 17. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Just simply saying, look, the picture of communion is that we're unified not only with Christ, but also with one another. And it, it heightens the warning that we're not only adulterating our worship of God through Christ, but we're also adulterating the special union we have with one another when we allow demonic worship or when we try to do both. We're harming our communion with God. We're harming our communion with other people because the Lord's Supper is a picture of both levels of fellowship. Yes, our fellowship with God, but also our fellowship with one another. Why? Because we have been placed into Christ. The Spirit of God has placed us into one body, the body of Christ. And therefore, we are unified together. So even as we partake of the individual pieces, what does he say? It's one loaf. And we are individual people, but we are one body. And that's a special communion, a special fellowship that we share. What's the implication? Don't adulterate that. He's moving in that progression. He's not just bringing this up. Oh, let's talk about communion. We're fellowshipping with God. We're fellowshipping with each other. No, we are doing that in Christ. Why is that so important? Because we wouldn't ever want to then say, well, I'm going to worship demons too. And I can do that. Right? That's where he's moving. Christians have communion with one another. They partake of the one bread that demonstrates their communion together as the body of Christ. Now, Paul will wax eloquent on this in 1 Corinthians 12. He will say, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. And how does this happen? For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and we've all been made to drink of one spirit. See, it's the spirit, not the meal, that creates the unity amongst believers, but the meal affirms and reinforces this unity and bringing them all together. It's a visible picture, and the visible nature of it is important. You can't just do away with communion. Well, because it's not the real body and blood, because there's no mystic change that happens in us, it doesn't matter. It matters. The physical participation that we do together with one another is a means of communing with the God who is really here. It's a time of worship in which he is to be honored and we're to participate as a church. Vital. So Paul says, look, you need to understand that you are having real communion with God when you partake of the Lord's Supper. But he's immediately going to move on. He's not diving more deeply into that. Because his next example is that Israel had communion with God in the sacrifices. Again, the idea is communion with here. And when you are in a worship ceremony, performing worship, you are communing with the one that you are worshiping. That's his whole point. There's a real communion that goes on there. So when Israel gave the sacrifices and then ate the meal after the sacrifices, they were communing with God. It was a real communion there. The God that they were giving the sacrifices to, they were actually in communion with. That's his point. So, verse 18, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? 
I think the idea shares in the altar of the God who is being sacrificed to. You share together in communion with that God. And I don't think here he's speaking of the Levites who, because you think, well, who ate of the sacrifices? Well, the Levites were supposed to eat certain parts of the sacrificed items. But so was Israel as a whole. Deuteronomy 14. So I think Paul is really referencing this idea. He's grounding all of this in the Old Testament. It says, you shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, what comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. That's this whole idea. You will eat in the presence of the Lord your God. He's there when you go to the temple. That was the, that was the first place they were supposed to go. And when you sacrifice, then they ate a certain amount of that, a certain portion of that sacrifice. He says, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So when, when Israel ate of the portions of the sacrifices that they had given in worship to God, they were sharing in communion with the God that they were worshiping. Right? Just as we share in true communion with the God we worship in, our, in the Lord's Supper. But now comes the turn. All right? Because right now, the Corinthians would be going, of course, we understand that. I mean, we know that we're in communion with God. We know that Israel, when they offered the sacrifices, we know our Bibles and our Old Testament, we understand that they were having communion with God. By the way, it's not equating, it's not the same kind exactly of communion that we have as the church, right? We have the Spirit of God indwelling us. That's not his point. It's not that the communion is exactly the same, simply that there is a true communion. You need to keep that in your mind. Now, he's got to deal with an objection that's probably immediately in their minds, so under this next heading here, Gentiles have communion with demons in their temple sacrifices. This is the stunning part. This is the one that they did not believe, right? And, and, and the ones following it. But first he deals with in verse 20, uh, or verse 19, what do I mean then? Right? What am I implying by this? This idea of communion with a deity when you sacrifice. That a, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? or that an idol is anything, he's already dealt with this, remember. Because the Corinthians are saying, wait a minute, Paul, yeah, we get that there is a kind of communion, but since there aren't any other real gods, then really there's no one else to commune with but the God of the universe, the real God. Right? That's pretty much it. So there aren't any other ways to commune. So Israel did that in the Old Testament. We're doing that now. There are no other real gods. So what are you saying, Paul? Are you now going back on what you said, that there are deities? That when the Gentiles worship, they're actually worshiping some kind of deity? Paul says, no, don't misunderstand me. That still remains true, that food sacrificed to idols isn't spiritually changed, it's not mystically changed. If you partake of it, it doesn't spiritually transform you, right? So he's saying, look, it's true that a thing sacrificed to idols, because the implied answer to this rhetorical question is no, right? A thing sacrificed to idols is not anything. He already said that in 1 Corinthians 8, 4. Now concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know there is no such thing as an idol in the world. There's no God but one. So he says, look, I'm not going back on that. Additionally, he says, I'm not saying that an idol is anything. I'm not now coming back and saying, no, those are actually gods themselves. But now comes the stunning part. He says, but what I am saying is that when the Gentiles are sacrificing in their temple, even though there's no real God there, there is a spiritual power there, and that's a demon. That's demonic power. And this would have been the stunning part to them. Well, there's no real thing to that worship. There's no real beings being worshipped here, so we're all fine. We can be involved in that. And Paul says, no, you can't. Why? 
Because the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Whether they think, see, whether they think that's true or not, they don't think they're sacrificing to demons. They think they're sacrificing to one of their deities, right? To Apollo or, or to you know, one of the gods, one of the, to Zeus, one of the Greek gods. But Paul says that is not at all the case. Their intent in worship doesn't matter. What's really happening is that the demons are being involved in that worship. They are the ones receiving, as it were, the worship. The communion, the fellowship, the sharing is with demons, and it's real. It's a real sharing. Just like Israel's sharing is real, and just like your sharing in communion is real, this one is just as real. And that would have absolutely taken the wind out of That would have been a gut punch right there. Now, I think he's already told them this, but he's coming back and making it very clear. This is what is actually happening. It's interesting, Deuteronomy 32. I mean, he's just getting this out of Old Testament theology that worshiping idols is worshiping demons. It says, they made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God. It's almost a direct quote from the Septuagint that Paul uses here. He doesn't put it in quotes, as it were. He's saying, look, you already know this. The Old Testament already told you that when you worshiped other gods, you were actually worshiping demons. You should have known this. And now I'm just bringing it to your attention. There's a real communion going on, not with these other gods, not in somehow transforming spiritually the food you're eating, but the fact that there is a real fellowship with these gods. Now, if you, I think there's a hint in the text here that one of the things they were saying was, look, you can't accidentally worship other gods because there aren't any. So if any worship is going on here, it's actually to the real God. I think maybe they were making that kind of argument. Now, lest you think that's an unusual argument, a man of such as C.S. Lewis made that kind of argument, which is, look, if you're doing a sincere worship of a false god, God will receive that as worship. Guess what? He won't. He will not see that as true worship. He cannot. That's demonic worship. See, worship to any other being, just because there are no other gods, doesn't automatically default back to God because he's the only one. No, what Paul is saying, look, there aren't any other gods. But any worship of any other god is actually demonic. It's not worshiping God himself in any way. So they're not accidentally making offerings to the true God. And they'll, it, they'll, it'll be okay when they show up in heaven and say, oh, you were very sincere in your worship. Wrong God. But it, no, that was demonic. For Gentiles and for any person. Because, number five, Christians who participate in temple sacrifices are having communion with demons. Look what he says next. Now, here's the real gut punch. All right, all right, Paul will we'll accept that Gentiles, even though they think they're worshiping some other God, are actually worshiping demons, but not us. When we go, we're worshiping God. He goes, nope. I do not want you to become, he says, verse 20. I do not, uh, verse yeah, middle of verse, end of verse 20. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Implication, if you go to those places, you are actually having communion with those demons, whether you think you're doing it or not. Your presence in that place, because that is what is happening, you are then communing. And that is what is adulterating the worship of God. Now, notice how he puts it, he begins with, by being kind. I don't want you. Of course he does not want them to be sharers in demons. Who are demons? Demons are angelic beings, creations of God, who rebelled against God. A third of them were swept from heaven when Satan led that rebellion. They are implacably 
in hatred against God for all of eternity, and they are irrevocably condemned to eternal judgment. No salvation for them. They're done. Why would you possibly want to worship with, in communion with, in the presence of beings who hate God and are condemned by him? How could you possibly want that? Paul says, I don't want that for you. And I I would say the same. Of course, I don't want that for you. As my beloved, why wouldn't I tell you that when you do that, you're actually worshiping demons and I don't want you because you're actually sharing with them and you as Christians, it it should strike you absolutely to the core of your being that you would hate worshiping a demon or being in communion with a demon and then also saying, hey, I'm going to be in communion with Christ. You ought to shudder at that thought. The Corinthians should have shuddered. Unfortunately, they weren't. Hey, we're powerful, we're strong, we're knowledgeable, we can do this, there aren't any other gods. Paul says, no, you can't. I don't want you to be sharers in demons. When you go, when you're part of that kind of worship, you are sharing in demons. And then he says, six, Christians cannot have communion with Christ and communion with demons. Not to say he didn't want them to. He then says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He's not saying they couldn't do it physically. Of course they could. He says, you must not do this thing. You can't do it. How can you possibly say you're loving Jesus when you go to these other sacrifices and then are actually in communion with demons and then come back to the Lord's Supper and sip and and eat? This is an abomination. Christians cannot have this kind of communion. They cannot say, I'm going to have communion with Christ and also partake of the world. This is exactly what's happening in a church like Andy Stanley's. Now, we're going to say it's wrong. We're going to say that you shouldn't actually be doing that, but we're going to allow that behavior in our church, and we're going to say we can worship God and take communion, and we can worship the gods of our age and imbibe in the sexuality, the pursuit of the wrong, twisted sexuality that our world pursues, and it's okay. It is not okay. You cannot partake of the table of demons and the table of Christ. You may not be involved in those practices. Because remember, we said... That although there is not, they're not necessarily going now to a temple in which the God of homosexuality or transgenderism or adultery or fornication. Yeah, I'll live my adulterous, fornicating lifestyle and then I'll come to communion and delight in my communion with God. You can't have both. And Christians can do both, but it's an abomination for them to do it. In fact, only Christians can do both because no unbeliever ever actually is worshiping God. No unbeliever actually has communion with Christ, but Christians do. And you can actually then adulterate that worship by putting yourself in a position where you're communing with demons. Christians can do that. And Paul says, you had better not. You may not combine those things. Because number seven, Christians who try to have communion with Christ and communion with demons do what? They provoke the Lord to jealousy. He says, look, you can't do this thing. And he, he, it's, it, he doesn't even hit the positive side of this. How could you possibly do this because you love Jesus? That, that, that's true. He's, he hits that largely in the idea of communion. All Jesus has done for you. How could you adulterate this because of the blessings you've been given? But he hits the negative side at the end. Verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? I mean, it's a little bit like a, a husband who would go to the house of another woman and eat with her and go to bed with her. He then comes home the next night and tells his wife, hey, I had a great time over at so-and-so's house, house last night. Hey, why don't we go out to dinner, come home, and make love together? And when she objects, he goes, wait a minute. We're going to enjoy this together. We're going to have intimacy together. Why does that bother you if I had intimacy with her and intimacy with you? 
It's intimacy. We're enjoying it. Why? Is that bothering you? Because intimacy is exclusive. This kind of intimacy is absolutely exclusive. It may not be shared. You can't share your marriage communion with your wife, and you can't share your worship communion with your Savior. They are exclusive. Paul could not be laying this down more strongly, and I can't even communicate to you the gravity of this. I, I mean, he's already been talking about with Israel. They died, and there's people dying, and they're falling in the wilderness, and there's bodies. I mean, Paul is bringing this home with the, with, with the greatest possible vigor because then he ends with this because you're like, okay, so I'm provoking the Lord to jealousy. Who cares? Well, you ought to care because the Lord is stronger than you, right? And if the husband that you agree, that you cuckolded by taking his wife is not stronger than you, you could beat him up, but you don't have that chance with the Lord. When he comes for you, you lose. That's what I'm saying. Are we stronger than he? Are we? I'm not making this up. It is in the text. You provoke him to jealousy. He's stronger than you. Guess what? He's taking you out. You cannot resist it. There's nothing you can do to escape it. Notice that he's not in any way telling them to be afraid of the power of demons. He's saying being afraid of the power of God. That's who you ought to fear. You're not fearing the demons you worship. They don't hold your eternal destiny, and in this case for the church, they don't hold your life and breath in their hands. No demon holds your life and breath in their hands. Only God does. And Paul is about to move on to say, and because you're doing this you're dying. It's insane. It is insane. Provoking Christ to jealousy is insane. You can't win. And why would you ever want to adulterate the worship of the Savior who died for you? The beauty of the bridegroom being adulterated by the bride is a heinous thought for any believer. And so we should run from any kind of idolatrous response which would rise to the level of communing with demons. And that is to pursue those things that demonic worship drives, the pursuit of our own pleasures to the extreme. And again, I'm not saying those Christians wrestle and struggle with sin, that you are in this way communing with Christ and communing with demons. It's why you confess your sin when you come to communion. It's why you confess your sin on a regular basis. But it's already, as we said, you need to be careful that you don't allow anything. That in your life, you're not going and pursuing. I mean, you're not kind of combined religions. You're going to do some, you know, Muslim stuff and some Catholic stuff and some Christian stuff. You're going to head it out and, you know, rah-rah with your flags, you know, gay pride. And, you know, you're not going to do that. But also, you're not going to draw that into the church. We'll do gay pride in the church. We'll do adultery and fornication in the church. We'll just, we'll, we'll just bring, forget the religious worship service. We'll just bring the worship right here. We may not do either one of those things. There are times and ways in which our behavior equates to the worship of demons in this way, even though there's no temple out there. And so we've got to be really careful. And you need to carefully evaluate whether or not you're properly judging everything in Scripture to be true and believed and obeyed by you. Are you delighting then in pursuing communion with Christ and with other members of the body of Christ? You ought to delight in that. And to the extent that you delight in that, that ought to drive you away from anything like a, a life-dominating worship, a life-dominating idolatry, which is actually communing with demons. You go home and you open up that computer file and you have, a, you have a whole pattern of life, a whole secret life built around your pornography, the demon, as it were, of that. As the demons love that. And you are doing that. 
If you, you can't, you don't then just show up at church and partake of communion and say, it's all fine. Now, if you're a true believer, generally, and you're part of the church, what do you do? You confess that. Isn't it? You can't recover from that. You can. But you confess it at every moment, every time, anything which would drive you in this direction. Again, I, I'm convinced that's most of you. But, but continue to do that. Do not try to combine these, this kind of worship. And if you are not, if there's an area of your life where you're saying, I mean, I'm actually communing with demons here. There's a real worship going on, whether you think there is or not. If you've excused it away, well, I'm not really worshiping demons. This is just a, a, a physical, pleasurable act that I'm involved in. There's no such thing. If it dishonors God and it rises to this level, because the Corinthians weren't going to the temples to say, I'm going to worship those demons. They're going to say, I'm going to eat the meal, have a good time at the thing, and go back. Paul says, you are actually communing. So don't fool yourself. Don't make excuses for yourself where this might be the case. But might it be that we, as a pure and holy bride, would not adulterate ourselves by actually communing in some way fellowshipping in some way with the haters of our own souls and those condemned by God himself. And as we do this, we will then demonstrate to the world the fact that they can, in fact, flee idolatry. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've given us these warnings so that we will not suffer underneath your own hand so that we will not somehow adulterate the worship of, of you whom we love and Jesus whom we love. Lord, we, we, this is the furthest thing from our desire, that we would ever have anything in our lives which would, would somehow be communing with the very forces that you hate and that hate us. Father, I pray that we would love Jesus to the extent that we would set these idols aside, that we would come every time to our Lord's table, to your table with joy because of the blessing that you've given and that we would bless you with our lives. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.